Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 32 is our passage for today. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 to 32, and let's look at God's word together, beginning in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now let's go to the Lord and ask his help as we consider this text together. Father in heaven, we do bow our hearts before you this day. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to worship your name together as your people, those who you have purchased at the cost of the blood of your own son. Lord, thank you for each one that is here today and for the blessing that we have of being able to lift up your name, uh, to sing together, to be reminded of of the precious truths of the gospel, and to forget not all the benefits that we have in knowing you. Now, Lord, as we come to open up your word, I pray that you would work in our hearts that which is pleasing to you. We pray that your truths, your precepts would be to us as they were to David, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Lord, I pray that you would give us both a hunger for it and a delight in it. We pray that we would come to know the blessing that is found in hearing the word of God and keeping it. 
And we ask that your name would be glorified in the heart of every person that is here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The reason the Son of God appeared, the Bible says, was to destroy the work of the devil. We see here in our text a small-scale depiction of that purpose statement borne out in action, a scale model demonstration of what God is doing on a cosmic level and what we can see that he has done even in a room like this in the hearts of men. In the beginning of this passage, the Lord Jesus cast out a demon out of a man that was mute, uh, young children. Uh, this man was unable to speak. He was possessed by a demon and that demon had made it such that the man couldn't talk. He was unable to utter a word. We don't know very much about the situation, and that's okay. The focus here isn't on that man, but on Christ. The focus is on the Son of God. The power of the Son of God delivers this man from the strongholds of satanic affliction of satanic oppression and when that demon goes out of the man he begins to talk he begins to speak his tongue is loosed to the praise of God's glorious grace now the emphasis of this passage isn't so much on the fact of Christ's power that much is taken for granted in fact you might notice as you read through the gospels that the question of Christ's power, the fact of his miracle-working power, is never in dispute. It is never questioned whether or not he did, in fact, work the miracles that are attributed to him. The emphasis here isn't on the fact of his power, but on humanity's response to it. How do we understand what is revealed of Christ in the working of that power? How do we interpret those mighty acts? We might say, how should we respond to what God in Christ has done in the world? And you can see that theme from the very start of this passage in the way Luke highlights three different interpretations that you find in the crowd of this exorcism of this demonic spirit being loose from this man. First, there are some that marvel. There were some that day when they witnessed what they saw, they were amazed. They marveled. The, the book of Matthew tells us that at least some of them even began to wonder whether this was the son of David. So they're, they're what you might call sincere inquirers. They are taking the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies, this would have been uh, Jews, and they're holding them up against what they see and in the person and work of Christ, and they're thinking to themselves, could it be? Could this be the son of David? They're like that scribe who, who said that to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and then to love your neighbor uh, as yourself, that that is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus responded to him by saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. They're not what we would call saved in today's language, but they're, they're wrestling with what they see. They're beginning to put the pieces together. And then we come to verse 15, where it says that some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now the name Beelzebul originates from a description of a, of a Canaanite god, Baal, it also shows up as the name of one of the Philistine gods uh, over the city of Ekron. In this context, and you can see this in, in, in the way that Jesus replies to this contingent, it is also effectively synonymous with Satan. It's another name for the devil. The two names are interchangeable. So this group, the second group, they attribute the power of Christ to the work 
of the devil. Just hold that in your mind. And then number three, still others sought to test him. Keeping, uh, they, they, they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And understand here that whenever you see someone in the scriptures testing God or testing Christ, the Son of God, there stands behind that malicious intent. That's going to be important later. The idea behind that isn't that they just want to see if Jesus knows the right answers or if he really has miraculous power, but they test him in order to accuse him. They test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So you have three camps. One of them is largely positive. The other two, they represent uh, groups of people who uh, are opposed in various ways to the teaching and ministry of Christ. And Jesus is going to address all three of them, demonstrating that actually all three of them are insufficient responses to the person and work of Christ. All three of them are insufficient work, uh, responses to his miraculous power, their faulty ways of understanding what they see, which leads in turn to the question, what is called for in humanity's response to Christ's undeniable power? What is called for in terms of humanity's response to the undeniable power of God's Son? Jesus Christ. That's what we want to wrestle with today, and Jesus shows that as well as we work through the text. And I'm going to say this message is going to be a little bit different today uh, from normal in that the primary audience of Christ's teaching in the text is unbelievers, and so that's going to be reflected in the focus of of the sermon today. Uh, Jesus He directs his attention primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to those who would say, well, I'm on the fence about Jesus, or I'm not sure quite what to make of him, or I don't know what kind of relationship I have with him or I want to have with him. So with that in mind, follow along with me, if you will. Jesus deals with the second of the group, of those groups first. So you stay, stay with me. These are those who allege Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. And he might be dealing with this group first because it's an especially uh, dangerous position to hold. It's actually spiritually slanderous. It's a position that assigns the work of God to the hand of the devil And so it it is therefore blasphemous in nature. Look at what Jesus says in verse 17 to these. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. He tells them in simple terms, look, first of all, you haven't thought through your argument very well. The whole idea is nonsensical what they are saying about Jesus. Not only does it suggest that Jesus is in league with Satan and that he is dependent on the devil's power to do what he does, that he is therefore subordinate to the evil one, but it's completely illogical. He says a divided household falls. This isn't going to work. And in saying so, he's, he's calling attention to the opposite aims of the, of, of, of the Messiah and of Satan, Beelzebul. Jesus and Satan have two opposite aims in the world. They are not on the same team. They are not of the same kingdom. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Two opposite aims 
in the world. Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Christ came, why? That we may have life and that more abundantly. So Jesus says, understand, if I am casting out demons by Beelzebul, that means he is undermining the greatness and power of his own kingdom. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? That would be to put Satan in competition with himself. So look at your stated claim and consider its implications. Now, on the other hand, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God, or the finger of God rather, is a reference to that which cannot be explained by by mortal power. That which cannot be attributed to what mortal men can accomplish within the world. It's what Pharaoh's magicians referred to when uh, things rolled around to the third plague, to that plague of gnats, and they were unable to replicate what they saw uh, Moses working. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Well, so here also, this man has been liberated from spiritual oppression, not by the powers of darkness, but by the very finger of God, which means in turn, the kingdom of God has come. Now we have, we've been saying this for several weeks, church, the kingdom of God is here because the king is here. The kingdom of God is here because the king is here. Christ has come. If you don't know Christ, hear what this passage says. Christ has come to the earth in his conquering power to loose men from their chains of sin, to loose men from darkness, to deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of God's beloved son, the kingdom of God's dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom Jesus rules over, and he does all of this by the finger of God, by the power of the Almighty One. He has come to set you free from bondage and slavery and oppression and captivity from the tyranny of sin. And the Bible says that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You'll know true freedom, the kind of freedom that you cannot accomplish in your own life by self-reformation, by moral achievements. You will be free indeed. Jesus gives them an illustration here to drive home the point. This is something that will uh, give us all a different way of looking at things, a different and and proper way of understanding what uh, they witnessed in the exorcism of that spirit from the mute man. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe, But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. You have a picture here between a clash between the power and dominion of Satan and the power and dominion of God. There are a few things that we can draw out of this illustration. The first takeaway is this, when there is that clash, when there is a clash between the power and dominion of Satan and the power and dominion of God, God wins. God wins. God gets the victory. When a strong man, fully armed, that's a picture of Satan, 
when he guards his own palace, that's a picture of man, his goods are safe. Everything's at rest until, until what happens? Until one stronger comes along. So when demonic power takes possession of a man and the Lord Jesus, by the finger of God, wills to bring liberty, there will be liberty. And friends, this is wonderful news for mankind. This is wonderful news because apart from his intervention, apart from his merciful deliverance, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So don't think to yourself here, well, now wait a minute, I'm not mute. I'm not dealing with demonic possession. This doesn't apply to me. Don't deceive yourself. Don't think in those kinds of terms. If you don't know Christ, if you're not indwelt by the the Spirit of God, you're in the grip of a strong man. You're in the grip of a strong man. This is one of those points of great delusion The world suffers under thinking that we are autonomous beings, that we go about unhindered, uninfluenced by spiritual forces, that we're rational, enlightened men, that we are free to govern ourselves as we will. We tell ourselves, I will stand on my own two feet. Beloved, it may do great damage to our pride. But let the truth ring out in our ears. Apart from Christ's mercy and grace, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Following what? Following who? Who does the Apostle Paul say? Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is the truth of God's word. From this we conclude that in the same way the Lord by his spirit works in the hearts of his people both to will and to do for his good pleasure, so does the evil one. So does the evil one lead the lost even if it be as his unwitting agents in lawlessness, in temptation, in every way that is opposed to God, the devil works to fulfill his own designs and the lost man follows. He follows. But friends, he may be a strong man, but there is one stronger still. There is one stronger still. So don't fear the devil. That is not the right response to this Uh, passage. Jesus went to the cross to deliver us from the power of the devil over our lives. He went to cancel the record of debt that stood over us with its legal demands, those trespasses and sins. This he set aside, nailing to the cross, never to be raised against us again. Do you know what else the Bible says Christ accomplished there? It says the same thing. This illustration says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He attacked and overcame them to the praise of God's glorious grace. He subjected himself in what looked like defeat. He subjected himself to the shame and the humiliation of the cross. But he won the victory through his death, burial, and resurrection. So put your trust in him. Young people, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Turn to him, submit your life to the, to the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan and unto God, and he will set you free. We cannot escape just how black and white everything in this passage is. There is Satan and there's Christ. 
There is the kingdom of the devil and there's the kingdom of God. There is those who, uh, whose dwelling is guarded and possessed by the strong man. And then there's one who, the ones who know the one still stronger. Now, look with me, if you will, at verse 23. And this is where Christ really begins to get into application and, and shows us how we must respond. He says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He is saying that he will have no third way. He will have no third way. This again is a myth. So many succumb to in our culture today, thinking that they are in a state of indifference relative to the person and work of Jesus Christ, or that you can judge him like other men, that he, well, he's, a, he's an exemplary figure, no doubt. He's someone who was certainly gracious and kind. He, he said many good things, but not, not a king that demands our submission and our allegiance, no. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. That's Christ's verdict against humanity. There's no room for neutrality. No room. Everyone in this room finds themselves on one side or the other of that verdict. So if you are tempted to think to yourself, I am on the fence about this Jesus stuff, I want you to hear Christ's words. I want you to consider what they mean for you as it pertains to the condition of your soul. If you think to yourself, I'm not against Jesus, I'm, not, I'm just not sure that I'm for him. I'm just not sure that I'm for him in the kind of radical way that the Gospels call us to be for him or to follow him. Or you say to yourself, well, I have that that spirit of agnosticism that says, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not really an unbeliever either. Dear ones, hear the word of God. Hear what it says here in verse 23. Reckon with it today. The Lord Jesus himself divides all of humanity into two camps. Are you with him or are you against him? This is like the Joshua 24 and verse 15 of the book of Luke. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, We will serve the Lord. The person and work of Christ demands a response. Demands a response. Where do your loyalties lay today? Would you just take a moment and answer that? Where do your loyalties lay? There will be many who go to eternal destruction, believing themselves to be on spiritually neutral ground. They're not opposed to Christ, they say, but they're in a state of delusion. There is no neutrality. You see the same thing at the end of verse 23. Uh, Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Probably this is a, a reference to gathering or scattering the flock. Those who aren't gathering alongside Christ are actively working against his mission. How is that the case? By their influence in the world? By their love for all that is in the world? By their drawing men away to the desires of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life? You are actively working against the one before whom you will stand. At the final judgment, what a sobering thing to consider. That brings us to verse 24. This is an an interesting passage, and it, it picks up on that exorcism we see at the beginning of the passage. Allow me to read this again from verse 24. When the unclean spirit 
has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus tells us that his defeat of the strong man has left that castle liberated. And so the demon goes off. He wanders off into waterless places. That gives you an idea of a desert or a wilderness. No place that you would call home. And so what does it do? Well, it returns back to the place from which it came. And what does it discover when it, when it, when it returns there? Well, it finds it beautiful. It's clean. The house is in order. It's organized. Everything's neat. It's all been tidied up. The house has been uh, dusted and swept and everything is perfectly arranged. There's just one problem. There's no master. There's no one dwelling there. So here you have a picture of a man who is represented by this house and he has seen great things of God. He has experienced the power of God. He, he, he is a living example of what Hebrews chapter 6 describes where it talks about those who have once been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. In the case of the, the man at, at hand, he has been set free from the bondage and tyranny of demonic power and so in that sense, he knew God's power. He knew the, the delivering power of the, the Son of God, and there had been a change. There had been a change in his life that was plain for all to see he'd been affected by Christ. But the Spirit of God did not, in fact, dwell in him. He had not bowed his heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so the spirit returns with seven other spirits more evil than itself, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. Friends, maybe there are some of you who are like that here today. You perhaps have spent your life exposed to the things of God. You have seen him do amazing things and you you do not doubt the reality of God you do not doubt the power of the Lord Jesus Christ perhaps that has even had some effect on you maybe you have become religious you go to church you've cleaned up your act there there's been moral reformation on a superficial level there have been some things that have changed. You've tidied up your life, but for all that you have experienced of God's mercy and his grace and his love and his power, you remain unconverted and you know you're unconverted because you're a slave to sin. You remain a slave to sin. Beloved, what does Christ seek to impress upon our hearts by these words? There is an urgency in responding to his gracious power. It's of grave, everlasting significance that we not only witness the power of Christ to save, that we taste secondhand of his goodness and the powers of the age to come, but that we repent, that we repent of our sin, that we bow at his feet and we proclaim him as Lord, that he comes to dwell within us, that he takes up residence within our hearts there without a rival to reign. This is of urgent necessity. You remember how Peter preached 
on the day of Pentecost. And he told the people how this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and that God had made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. And it says that they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? They knew there was a response that was required on their part. They knew they couldn't sit idly by. They knew that they could not remain as passive observers. They knew there was no neutral ground on which to stand. stand. And, And Peter said, repent, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will come, and he will take up residence in your heart. The Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, we come to verse 27. Here we find someone who falls into that first category of those who marvel at what Christ's saying and doing. There's a woman here, and she witnesses Jesus' power. She hears, uh, no doubt, the wisdom in his teaching, and she raises her voice, and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. She is certifiably impressed. And it's at this point that Jesus comes, and he offers some, some gentle chastisement to her he says blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it in other words true blessing isn't found just in being a part of Christ's natural descent and being a part of his lineage but in trusting him with the eyes of faith and walking in obedience to him living for the glory of his name. Remember, remember what he said some, some chapters back in our study, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So there was what you might call some misguided zeal on her part here. She is enthused at what she says, but that, is, that, that excitement is pointed in the wrong direction. Hiding the word in our hearts, that we might not sin against God, that's where true blessing is found. That's where the blessing of God is known. In living for the glory of Christ, following in his commandments. So we've dealt with two Categories of observers, those who call into question the nature of his power, those who marvel, that leaves us with a third, those who sought to test him. They kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. You find Jesus' response to that contingent in verses 29 to 32. He says, first of all, this generation is an evil generation. Church, some of the things we've had to say here today are difficult to hear especially to the ears of the natural man. The church, be wary of of preachers who only tell you things that are comfortable to hear. You are sitting under preaching where you you never find yourself squirming in your seat. You you never find yourself uh, with your cheeks flushing red. You might want to look for a different place. Jesus said, this generation is an evil generation. He says, no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jonah was a man, as you might well know, who was given a message appointed by the Lord to go to the land of Nineveh and call them to repentance. And you remember the story there, Jonah didn't want to go. He dragged his heels, that's putting it kindly. He, He protested and he rebelled, and eventually that led to him being swallowed up by a great fish. 
for three days and three nights. But Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And so he went into the city preaching. He went into the city preaching a message of repentance and salvation. Well, now, in the mouth of Christ, redemptive history becomes a kind of typology. And Jesus says that in the same way that Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh as a means of their rescue from destruction, so also has Christ come to the earth to bring deliverance. For all that hear his message, for all that respond in repentance and faith, there is the hope of of salvation. Jonah is the shadow of the substance that we find in Christ. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, uh, Matthew tells us in the Gospels. Now, there's some encouragement to be had there, even as Jesus says this generation is an evil generation, because as wicked as that generation is, the mercy and salvation of God continues to be extended to it and continues to be extended to us, just as it was in, in Jonah's day. And so you have a message of great hope here, but there is also a, a, a profound warning as well. Look at verse 31. Jesus goes on, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus calls our attention here to two Old Testament passages, 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9 where the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon, wanting to find out all that that she really can discover about Solomon. She's heard about his fame and about his wisdom. And the key thing here, as it pertains to our text, is that she came to test him with hard questions, the Old Testament says. So you, you see the parallel there, Uh, with the spirit of this third group in our text. The queen of Sheba comes to Solomon with her very great retinue, and she told him everything that was on her mind. And the Bible says that Solomon answered all of her questions. Everything that she could throw at him, there was nothing he could not explain to her. Now, how did the queen of the south The queen of Sheba respond to that. Remember again, the focus of our text is the response of the people of God to the power of God's anointed king. These are her words, the queen of Sheba's words from 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Here you have a woman who herself was a woman of great renown, incredible power and prestige. She had incredible wealth incredible might, and she acknowledges that Solomon's kingship is one that is established of the Lord, that he is, in fact, a divine agent set on the throne to execute justice and righteousness, that his wisdom goes uh, even beyond uh, what she has heard of him. Now, who does that sound like? something greater 
than Solomon is here. Standing in contrast to the people of Israel, you have the queen of Sheba. Uh, In the first century, you had Israel rejecting God's anointed king. The queen of Sheba is not an insider. Where does she come from? She comes from the ends of the earth. She wasn't an Israelite. Well, now Jesus makes his point. He says, she will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. At the last day when the dead in Christ rise up, her submission to and exaltation of God's chosen king is going to stand as a witness and a voice of condemnation against all that reject the salvation of the Lord. Why? Well, because something greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was a very wise man, wasn't he? But he's also very foolish in many respects. He was a very great king, but he was a very sinful king as well. Jesus is a perfect, righteous infinitely wise king and he deserves the honor and the praise and the glory of every man every soul in similar fashion we come to the people of Nineveh the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold Something greater than Jonah is here. Even the men of Nineveh, this this wicked city, uh, repented. Jonah went and he, he preached to that great city whose evil had risen up before the Lord. This was an enormous city. Even by today's standards, it would have taken three days just to walk across the whole thing. And Jonah went around according to the word of the Lord, saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And there was a season of returning to the Lord that swept through that entire land. A season of returning, not even the the king was exempt from. He stripped off his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he issued a decree. He had this proclaimed throughout the whole city. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And friends, God did. God relented of the disaster that would have otherwise come to that great city all through the ministry of Jonah. They repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Dear ones, the Lord Jesus and his kingdom are here. The kingdom of God has come upon you. The redemptive purposes of God in the person and work of Christ have been fully revealed to us and are now proclaimed to you in the good news of the gospel. Christ crucified, buried, risen, ascended to the right hand of the Father. And to this day, his exaltation continues to declare he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. What is your response to him? Are you with him or are you against him? Have you bowed at his feet? Have you repented? Or do you remain under the condemnation of these ancient witnesses? 
Christ has come. Now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we confess that we have not lived in humble submission to your kingship. Christ, your lordship over our lives has not been evident in the way that we live and the things that we give ourselves to and the desires that we have. We pray for your work in our hearts. Lord, we know that godly sorrow works repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And I pray that that repentant spirit that the people of Nineveh knew would be ours as well. That we, will, that we might not fall under condemnation. And Lord, I thank you for the Lord Jesus, that in him there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are found in him. God, we thank you for his mighty power that to this very day sets men free from the yoke of slavery and oppression. We thank you, Jesus, for dying in our place, for shedding your blood. Thank you, Lord, that you have the power over the spiritual forces of darkness. Father, we have no hope apart from your mercy and grace. We confess we have no righteousness of our own, nothing by which we can earn your favor. We need redemption. We need atonement. We need to be washed of the stain of our sin. Forgive us, God. Lord, I pray that you would draw sinners to yourself. I pray that you would sanctify the hearts of your people. For your name's sake, we ask. Amen.